Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Season 7 of the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. In this season, we are discussing the Bosnian War of the 1990s. This is Episode 7-15, Bosnia and Dayton. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. The Bosnian Serbs capture Srebrenica and murder over 7,000 Bosniak men and boys. A week later, Jepo also falls to the Serbs. The Clinton administration is frustrated that two UN safe areas are lost. Out west, Bosniak and Croat forces break the siege on Bihać. And with that, let's discuss the end of the war in Bosnia. Another Market Massacre Despite their losses in the West, the Serbs looked poised to take Garajde, completing their sweep of the Eastern Muslim enclaves. Garajde had been under siege off and on since 1992. In May 1995, the Serbs ignored UN warnings and attacked Garajde. However, Welsh peacekeepers forced them to turn back. When they couldn't take Garajde, the Serbs went for Srebrenica instead. But now the Serbs were renewing their efforts to take the enclave, and the UN seemed willing to let them have it. British General and UN Commander Rupert Smith met with Radko Mladic in early August 1995 to negotiate the withdrawal of Ukrainian and British peacekeepers. General Smith informed Mladic that the peacekeepers would not be replaced with new troops. This was welcome news to Mladic. He ordered his troops to allow the UN peacekeepers to withdraw. Despite promises that no more safe areas would fall after Srebrenica, it appeared the UN was abandoning the Bosniaks once again. At the same time, there were rumors that the U.S. was willing to use Garage Day as a bargaining chip to get the Serbs to negotiate. The Bosnian government did not seem to care one way or the other. They intended to protect every piece of Bosnia as best they could, with or without help from the West. As one government official in Garajda remarked as the UN peacekeepers left, they weren't protecting us anyway. For several days, the steady withdrawal of UN troops from Garajda was all over the news. The world looked on in confusion as the international community acquiesced to the Serbs yet again. By the last week of August, most of the UN peacekeepers were out of Garajde. But on Monday, August 28, 1995, attention shifted away from Garajde and toward Sarajevo. Five artillery shells landed in Sarajevo that day. One shell hit a hospital, wounding several people who were recovering from previous shelling. Another hit a theater, injuring more people but the most damage was caused by a shell that landed in a crowded marketplace. This was the same market that was hit by Serb artillery back in February 1994. We discussed this attack in episode 12 of this series. Fewer people were killed in this attack, but the images were no less gruesome. Mangled bodies, still alive but missing legs and arms, writhed in the street. 
Blood ran in small streams down dirty alleys. Dead bodies, ripped apart by the blast, were slung over fences and against walls. These were the images that greeted the world as cable news beamed them across the globe. The Bosnian government was livid. President Alija Izetbegovic demanded NATO take action. NATO must protect us or let us protect ourselves, he demanded. His prime minister, Harris Selajic, was more graphic. If the United Nations wants to stop innocent people being killed, he told reporters, and for us to stop seeing children's arms and legs all over the streets, they have to understand that those people only understand force and nothing else. Just like the previous market attack in 1994, the Serbs pinned the blame on the Muslims. They accused the Bosniaks of attacking their own people to derail the peace talks. But a UN spokesman confirmed that the mortar round had come from outside the city to the south, a region still controlled by the Bosnian Serbs. With that confirmation, NATO airstrikes began the following day. The Politics of the Airstrikes Throughout the war, the United States and its European allies had different ideas on how to handle the situation in Bosnia. While the Americans had made it clear they would never send ground troops into Bosnia, they were in favor of using NATO airstrikes. From the American perspective, airstrikes should be used to protect the UN-designated safe areas and punish those who violated them. But the Europeans had a different take. The Americans did not have any troops in harm's way in Bosnia. However, the Europeans had committed thousands of troops to the UN peacekeeping effort. As we've seen throughout this series, the Serbs had successfully used those troops to deter airstrikes. The Serbs used them as human shields, as bargaining chips, and as hostages. This negated NATO airstrikes, allowing the Serbs to execute their plan to ethnically cleanse Bosnia of Muslims and Croats. This plan had led to the capture of Srebrenica in July 1995, its subsequent massacre, and the fall of Jeppa a week later. By this time, most people knew something horrible had happened at Srebrenica, though the full extent of the massacre was not yet clear. Nonetheless, the fall of a UN safe area was embarrassing. The Clinton administration decided to abandon its passive, incremental strategy for a more forceful one. Another motivating factor for President Clinton was the elections coming up the following year. The likely Republican challenger would be Senator Bob Dole. Senator Dole had long advocated the use of force against the Serbs and criticized Clinton's handling of the crisis. President Bill Clinton needed to prove his international bona fides. Other than the salacious gossip surrounding his personal life, this was the weakest aspect of his presidency. Domestically, the United States was doing great. A fascinating technology called the Internet was taking the country by storm. The Internet allowed people to communicate through connected computers, opening up all sorts of new economic possibilities. In 1995, a new company called Yahoo Incorporated in California. Certain to stand the test of time, Yahoo's entire revenue model was based around giving away free information on the Internet. 
Also in 1995, a technology company called Microsoft released its new operating system, Windows 95. Windows 95 featured amazing innovations such as a taskbar and start button. This was the beginning of the information age and it kicked off an economic boom in the United States. Internationally, however, Bill Clinton's record was less impressive. He'd retreated from Somalia after the Battle of Mogadishu. He'd done nothing as the brutal genocide in Rwanda played out. He'd been played by North Korea during their push for nuclear weapons. And for the past three years, the Serbs had made the United Nations, NATO, and the United States look like fools. In June 1995, President Clinton ordered Tony Lake, his national security advisor, to come up with a plan to resolve the crisis in Bosnia. Tony Lake knew that economic incentives, such as lifting sanctions and monetary payoffs, had been unsuccessful so far. He came to the same conclusion that Bosnian PM Haris Selajic had come to. The only thing the Bosnian Serbs understood was force. Tony Lake, supported by Clinton's UN ambassador Madeleine Albright, advised the president to use airstrikes to force the Serbs to negotiate. As for UN and European objections, Ambassador Albright suggested removing the peacekeepers from Bosnia. Once the Bosnian Muslims and the Bosnian Serbs were ready to negotiate, the U.S. would encourage them to accept a peace plan. If the Serbs rejected it, the U.N. would lift the embargo and leave Bosnia while the U.S. equipped and trained the Bosniaks. If the Bosniaks rejected the plan, the UN would still lift the embargo and leave Bosnia, but the US would offer no assistance and the Muslims would be on their own. Some parts of the Clinton administration disagreed with removing the peacekeepers. Richard Holbrook and the Pentagon both believed this would open up a new dynamic of violence that no one was ready for. Besides, the U.S. would still have to deploy ground forces to assist with the U.N. withdrawal. Furthermore, Richard Holbrook and Tony Lake had personal differences that have nothing to do with our story. These two sides of the Clinton administration debated furiously. But when Srebrenica fell in July, Clinton ordered Tony Lake to go forward with his plan. The next step was to get the Europeans on board. Tony Lake spent the next couple of weeks visiting various foreign capitals, informing them of the U.S. plan. For the most part, everyone agreed. This is what led the United Nations to remove the Ukrainian and British peacekeepers from Garage Day in August 1995. The Serbs believed the U.N. was giving up, but in actuality, it was part of a broader plan. So long as the Serbs could kidnap U.N. troops, they'd always have a bargaining chip. A United Nations Rapid Reaction Force would replace UNPROFOR. Unlike the peacekeepers, the Rapid Reaction Force would be authorized to conduct offensive attacks against the Serbs. They would be the ground assault element of NATO's aerial offensive. And when those mortar rounds exploded in that Sarajevo market in late August 1995, the United States and its allies launched Operation Deliberate Force. Operation Deliberate Force On August 30, 1995, 
Two days after the explosion at the Sarajevo market, the largest air campaign in NATO's history began. Over the next two weeks, the United States, Great Britain, France, Turkey, Spain, the Netherlands, and Italy conducted thousands of air raids against Serb targets. Within a day, Bosnian Serb General Radko Mladic was on the phone with UN officials offering concessions. His offers were rejected and the airstrikes continued. The attacks were launched from Aviano Air Base in northern Italy, as well as the American aircraft carrier, the USS Theodore Roosevelt. Three days into the operation, and Richard Holbrook announced the Serbs were willing to accept a division of Bosnia along the lines of the 1994 contact group plan. Back then, the Bosnian Serbs controlled nearly 70% of Bosnia. They had rejected the contact group plan that gave them 49% of Bosnia, while the Muslims and Croats shared the remaining 51%. But now, after three days of non-stop bombing, they were willing to accept that 49%. However, there was still a lot of disagreement over how these percentages would be decided. So the airstrikes continued. In addition to the airstrikes, the Rapid Reaction Force bombarded Serb targets with artillery while the U.S. Navy launched Tomahawk missiles from the Adriatic Sea. When the Serbs risked a single mortar strike against Sarajevo on September 1st, the Rapid Reaction Force responded with 24 shells on their position. NATO paused the airstrikes and gave the Bosnian Serbs until Monday, September 4th, to pull their artillery back to a 12.5-mile radius from Sarajevo. The United Nations used the lull in fighting to break the siege of Sarajevo. On September 3rd, the UN reopened a road leading into the city that the Serbs had controlled for years. They warned the Serbs to expect NATO airstrikes if they attacked the road. Ratko Mladic rejected NATO's ultimatum, stating nothing would happen until their warplanes left Republika Srpska airspace. NATO airstrikes resumed on Tuesday, September 5th. The War Out West Out West, the Bosniaks and Croats were making tremendous strides against the Serbs. A series of offensive thrusts allowed them to gain nearly 2,500 kilometers of Serb territory. The militaries of the Republic of Croatia and Herzeg Bosnia, that is, the Bosnian Croats, united to capture several towns from the Serbs in central Bosnia. Beginning on September 8, 1995, the Croatian forces swept west towards the border. Within five days, they had captured several towns from the Serbs and were poised to take more. Back in Sarajevo, on September 14th, NATO suspended its bombing campaign when the Serbs agreed to move their artillery away from the capital. Meanwhile, near the Bosnia-Croatia border, Bosnian government forces left the enclave of Bihać moving east, deeper into Bosnia. The Bosniaks captured several towns culminating with Sanski Most on September 17, 1995. With this victory, the Bosnian Muslims were only 13 miles from Priyadur. We discussed Priyadur in episode 7 of this series. It was one of the first cities the Serbs ethnically cleansed of Muslims. It was also the location of two notorious concentration camps. For the next two weeks, combined Bosniak and Croat troops inched towards Prigodor, attempting to break the Serb stronghold. With a lull in NATO airstrikes in the east, the Serbs were able to launch a counterattack in the west. 
By the end of September, they had reversed many of the Bosnian advances. On October 8th, the Croats launched Operation Southern Move, which reversed the advances the Serbs had made against the Muslims. Thousands of Serb civilians fled before the approaching Croat and Bosniak armies. This allowed Muslim refugees to return to the homes they'd been expelled from years earlier. Many of them returned to find loved ones gone, buried in mass graves. As the Serb-controlled towns and villages fell one after the other, most of the Serbs living in those cities fled to Banja Luka, 25 miles east of Priyadur. The Serbs had been expelling Muslims and Croats from the Banja Luka region ever since 1992. By 1995, it was their primary stronghold in the West. It was well fortified and defended by thousands of Serb troops. Even with NATO airstrikes, it would have been very difficult to conquer Banja Luka. But the Bosniaks and Croats were going to give it a shot. On October 9th, they captured the town of Mirkodjic Grad from the Serbs, putting them 16 miles from Banja Luka. Who knows what would have happened if the fighting had continued. Perhaps Banja Luka would have fell. Perhaps the Serbs would have held on. As it turned out, the United Nations brokered a ceasefire the following day. And while there were a few minor violations here and there, the guns largely fell silent in Bosnia. The Dayton Peace Accord The United Nations, which had been working on a ceasefire since October 5th, drew the lines between the opposing forces, supervised the removal of heavy weapons, and begun investigating alleged violations. Assistant Secretary of State Richard Holbrook began working on getting everyone to the negotiating table. Since the United States had taken the lead in the airstrikes, the United States would also take the lead in the peace talks. On October 18, 1995, Secretary of State Christopher Warren announced the peace talks would be hosted at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio. Secretary Warren cited the need for privacy as one of the reasons for selecting this location. The talks began on November 1st with Richard Holbrook acting as the chief U.S. negotiator. Included in the talks were President Slobodan Milosevic of Serbia, President Alija Izetbegovic of Bosnia, and President Frenjo Tudjman of Croatia. There were some misgivings about inviting Milosevic to the talk since many people considered him a war criminal. However, the Clinton administration insisted there was no way to strike a deal without involving the Serbian leader. In addition to the Balkan leaders, representatives from the contact group were also present. Besides the United States, this included Great Britain, Russia, France, and Germany. Representatives from the European Union were also present. The talks went on for over a week. Even though the media was blocked from most of the proceedings, the three leaders did gather with Holbrook for a few staged photo ops. But the vast majority of the negotiations was done behind closed doors. These negotiations involved Richard Holbrook walking between the individual suites of each leader. He listened to their demands, brought up any objections to those demands, then made demands on behalf of the United States. Finally, on November 21, 1995, a final peace agreement was reached. News cameras recorded the three Balkan leaders signing the General Framework Agreement for Peace in Bosnia and Herzegovina. 
but most people just called it the Dayton Peace Agreement. The Dayton Peace Agreement outlined how the new government of Bosnia and Herzegovina would work. This would turn out to be one of the most complicated governments on the planet. Bosnia would remain a single state, at least on paper. But this state would be divided into two entities, the Federation of Bosnia-Herzegovina and Republika Srpska. The Federation of Bosnia-Herzegovina would be a coalition between Muslims and Croats, while Republika Srpska would be an autonomous, self-governing entity, but not an independent nation. The Federation of Bosnia-Herzegovina was further divided into 10 segments called cantons, roughly along ethnic lines. No matter how you look at it, the Bosniaks got the short end of the stick while the Serbs were rewarded for ethnic cleansing. Governing over a fractured country, President Aliyah Izetbegovic reluctantly accepted this new reality. It may not be a just peace, but it is more than just a continuation of war, he said. In the situation as it is, and in the world as it is, a better peace could not have been achieved. The Bosniaks did achieve a few important victories at Dayton. First, all indicted war criminals received lifetime bans from politics in the new Bosnia. This included the Bosnian Serb president Radovan Karadzic and his top general Ratko Mladic. Second, Bosnian refugees, numbering over a million, were guaranteed the right of return and freedom of movement in this new Bosnia. Finally, Sarajevo and Garajde, two cities the Serbs desperately wanted, were awarded to the Bosnian government. Three weeks after signing the Dayton Peace Agreement, the parties met once again in Paris, France. On December 15, 1995, they signed the Paris Peace Treaty, which confirmed the Dayton Agreement. Izet Begovic, Tujman, and Milosevic all signed the peace treaty. Then President Clinton, President Jacques Chirac of France, Chancellor Helmut Kohl of Germany, Prime Minister John Major of the United Kingdom, Prime Minister Viktor Chernomerdin of Russia, and Prime Minister Felipe González of Spain signed as witnesses. President Izet Begovic summed up his feelings. My government is signing this agreement without any enthusiasm, like someone who is taking a bitter but useful poison. With this, the Bosnian War officially came to an end. The ICTY The International Criminal Tribunal for the Former Yugoslavia, or ICTY, was established by the United Nations on May 25, 1993. Its job was to investigate, prosecute, and punish war crimes committed in the former Yugoslavia. Broadly speaking, there were four categories of crimes the ICTY went after. Violations of the Geneva Convention, genocide, war crimes, and crimes against humanity. Since its inception, the ICTY has indicted over 160 people. The last indictment was issued in 2004, nearly a decade after the war ended. The ICTY's last judgment came in November 2017. 
The ICTY officially dissolved a month later on December 31, 2017. Here are some of the ICTY's more notable convictions. Radovan Karadzic, former president of Republika Srpska, convicted of genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes. Sentenced to life in prison. Ratko Mladic, chief of the general staff of the Army of Republika Srpska, convicted of genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes. Sentenced to life in prison. Dragoljub Kunarac, leader of a Serb militant group convicted of rape, enslavement, and torture. Sentenced to 28 years in prison. Radomir Kovac, sub-commander of a Serb militant group, convicted of rape and enslavement. Sentenced to 20 years in prison. Joran Vukovic, sub-commander of a Serb militant group, convicted of torture and rape. Sentenced to 12 years in prison. Milorad Kurnoyalac, commander of a Serb concentration camp, convicted of war crimes and crimes against humanity. Sentenced to 12 years in prison. Dragan Zelenovic, military police officer for the Bosnian Serb army, convicted of rape and torture. Sentenced to 15 years in prison. Biljana Plavsic, Bosnian Serb politician and government official, convicted of crimes against humanity. Sentenced to 11 years in prison. Momchilo Krajicnik, Bosnian Serb politician and co-founder of the Serb Democratic Party, convicted of crimes against humanity. Sentenced to 20 years in prison. In addition to the ICTY, the courts of Bosnia and Herzegovina has also convicted several people for crimes committed during the war. Human Cost of the Bosnian War The Bosnian War was the deadliest European conflict since World War II. Most estimates of casualties, rapes, and refugees are just that. Estimates. But it is important that we try to at least grasp just how devastating this modern war, this attempted genocide, truly was. The death toll is estimated at around 200,000. However, as of 2007, the actual number of documented civilian deaths between 1992 and 1995 in Bosnia and Herzegovina was just over 97,000. 83% of the civilian deaths were Bosnian Muslims. Of course, this number continues to increase with the ongoing discovery of mass graves throughout the country. Some estimates speculate there are over 300 mass graves in Bosnia. Years after the war ended, mass graves continue to be found. As recently as 2021, New mass graves continue to be discovered in Bosnia. Nearly 50,000 soldiers were killed during the war. 28,000 Bosniak soldiers, 14,000 Serbs, and 6,000 Croats. 320 UN peacekeepers were killed. It is impossible to determine how many women were raped during the war. Estimates currently stand at around 50,000. However, it is likely that thousands of Bosniak women have never reported their rape. And there were many women who died while being raped that we'll never know about. The women who were violated had to deal with tremendous mental and physical trauma. Even after receiving years of therapy, 
many victims have yet to overcome this trauma. At least 4,000 children were born as a result of these rapes. Known as, quote-unquote, invisible children, they face many difficulties as they are now adults. A father's name is required on many government documents. But this is information the invisible children cannot provide. Lessons from Bosnia What do we learn, if anything, from the Bosnian genocide? What makes seemingly nice people turn into animals willing to tear their friends and neighbors apart? This has happened many times just in the past century. This virus of nationalism has affected many nations. During World War II, the Germans did it with their Nazi ideology and the Japanese did it with their imperial glory. Sometimes it's driven by Western neocolonialism, paternalistic attempts to save a poor country from itself. For instance, the French in Algeria in the 1960s, or the Soviets in Afghanistan in the 1980s, or the Americans in Iraq in the 2000s. Other times, it's brother against brother or neighbor against neighbor. The partition of India in 1947 comes to mind, as does the Congo crisis in the 1960s and the civil wars in Somalia, Rwanda, and Yugoslavia in the 1990s. Sometimes it's religiously motivated, such as in Kashmir, Palestine, and Burma. Whatever the reasoning, it always begins with the othering of people. And then these others are dehumanized. They're classified as rapists and criminals, or labeled as thugs and drug dealers, or accused of being terrorists and jihadists. From there, it becomes morally acceptable to eliminate them using a final solution, or force them into Bantu stands, ghettos, penal colonies, re-education centers, and prisons. Propaganda is the primary tool used. Lies become truths, and the reality is covered up in a haze of falsehoods. Propaganda is the main tool to turn people against each other. The more it proliferates, the easier it becomes to motivate one group to hate another group. In the past, it was difficult to reach a lot of people in a short period of time. Kings and rulers had to rely on heralds and messengers to spread their propaganda. Though this was very costly and labor-intensive, it still worked. The Crusades of the 11th century is a perfect example. Print media has made this task even easier. Newspapers were used to influence public opinion during the Indian Mutiny of 1857, the Spanish-American War, and World War I. Then television came along, making it possible to spread propaganda in real time and to a broader audience. This is what the Serbs used to turn their people against the Muslims. Today, Anyone with an internet connection can influence large segments of people using social media, YouTube, and yes, even podcasts. In the next and final episode of this series, we will discuss the 1999 Kosovo War. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You can support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content 
by subscribing to our premium channel, Islamic History Exclusive. If you have an Apple device, iPhone, iPad, iPod, or any Mac computer, open the Apple Podcast app and search for Islamic History Exclusive. If you use Android, Windows, or any non-Apple device, visit patreon.com slash Islamic History. Stay tuned for a brief clip from one of our premium shows. Special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Sarosh for his research and support of the show, and thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. After that victory, Abdul Malik sent Hajjaj ibn Yusuf with an army to fight ibn Zubair at Mecca, where he ultimately de- where he ultimately defeated him. After Hajjaj ibn Yusuf defeated ibn Zubair, Abdul Malik then appointed him as the governor of, of as the governor of Medina. And a month after taking over Medina, Hajjaj made Umrah. He traveled to Mecca. Umrah is the minor pilgrimage. Hajjaj ibn Yusuf traveled to Mecca, and while he was in Mecca, he ordered the modifications that Ibn Zubair had made to the Kaaba to be destroyed, and he ordered for the Kaaba to be returned to how it was during the Prophet's life. And it has remained in those same dimensions ever since. Unlike Ibn Zubair, Hajjaj ibn Yusuf and his commander, his superior, Abdul Malik, who is the Caliph, they Neither one of them were companions. Ibn Zubair was a companion of Prophet Muhammad However, Hajjaj and Abdul Malik never saw the Prophet at all. Neither one of them were companions, and so they were not around, they were not aware of the Prophet's statements of, about the Kaaba that led Ibn Zubair to make adjustments to the Kaaba's dimensions. And we discussed all of this in episode 10 of the Ibn Zubair series if you want more details. Later on, when Abdul Malik heard about the Hadith and he understood why Ibn Zubair had made those changes, he expressed regret about the remodifications that Hajjaj Ibn Yusuf had made, but he did not order for the Kaaba to be torn down and rebuilt once again, which was probably, probably wise of him because, as we mentioned in Uh, the Ibn Zubair series, it would not be good for every new ruler to make adjustments and changes to the Kaaba based on their own whims. Nonetheless, after making Umrah, Hajjaj Ibn Yusuf returned to Medina, and once he was back in Medina and fully established, he began persecuting and tormenting the people of Medina in retaliation for their support of Ibn Zubair. For instance, he forced Jabir ibn Abdullah, who was a companion of Prophet Muhammad, and by this time an old man, he forced Jabir ibn Abdullah to wear a seal around his wrist. 
And he also forced many of the other companions, many of the other people of Medina to wear these seals around their necks. And these were companions. Of course, these are all old men and women by this time and their children. Now, these seals that we're talking about, these are like small tokens made of lead that that the government could stamp showing that taxes had been paid. Think of them as something like dog tags, not like collars, but like military dog tags, tiny little lead tokens hung by a string or a light chain around someone's neck or wrist. This practice of stamping these lead tokens uh, to show proof of tax payment this was first done by the Byzantines and the Sassanids before the Muslim conquest of Syria and Persia. These were done for the same reasons to verify that the wearer had, had paid their taxes. When the Arabs conquered Iraq and conquered Persia and conquered Syria, they picked up this same practice from the Persians. In Iraq, the Muslims often forced the the large number of non-Muslims that they ruled over, the Muslim rulers of Iraq often forced the much larger population of non-Muslims to wear these seals around their wrist or their neck as proof that they were members of the protected non-Muslim group and that they had paid their jizya, that they had paid their jizya tax. However, because non-Muslims were generally in a lower status in the social order. These, these lead tokens, as which were once again very minor, became something of a symbol of stigmatization. Once you see that token around someone's neck, you automatically know that they were not Muslim. <laughs> 